0: Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Southwest Radio Ministries and Watchmen on the Wall are celebrating 90 years of proclaiming the truth that God is still on the throne and prayer changes things. Today we go back into the radio vault to learn about the power of the resurrection from Rob Lindstedt, and we'll share a classic Bible in the News report that shares a message that is as timely today as as when it was first broadcast. By now, many of you have received information in the mail outlining the details of our Meeting the Mission project. Meeting the Mission is our special effort to match the $1 million gift SWRC has been blessed with. When you give to Southwest Radio Ministries, your gift will be matched. $25 becomes 50 $50 becomes $100, and so forth. You'll double your impact and ensure that Watchmen on the Wall and all of our ministries will be able to bring clarity to the chaos for many years to come. Would you consider giving $90 in recognition of our 90th anniversary? Like all gifts given at this time, your support will be doubled and go toward meeting the match. 1-800-652-1144 is the number to call and show your support for Southwest Radio Ministries. You can also be part of the match by giving on our special website supportswrc.com. That's supportswrc.com. To give on your mobile device, simply text 9490 to 91999. That's 90FOR90291999. in honor of our 90th anniversary. That would be an outstanding way to show your support. And it's doubled during this dollar-for-dollar match. Thank you for your support of Watchmen on the Wall and Southwest Radio Ministries. Now, let's listen to Dr. Rob Linstead as he shares the power of the resurrection. This program was first aired in the year 2000.
1: We are planning to start a new series today. It's a study on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 18 through 20. We want to spend about six weeks or so on these three chapters because I really believe that the validity of Christianity rests on the reality and the truth of the account concerning the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a grand story. And it's an important story, and I believe that, that we ought to find ourselves coming back to these great passages of Scripture and, and in them anchoring our soul and anchoring our hope and, and studying them out. I think word by word, verse by verse, these are important details if we're to convince others of the reality of the transformation that can take place in the life of a believer when he has seen that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ was done for our behalf. Let's begin reading in John chapter 18 this morning in verse 1. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often resorted there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. Judas also, who betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then, as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then ask ye them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the same might be fulfilled, which he spoke of them whom thou gavest me. I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and caught off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Ananias first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that same year. Now, Caiaphas was he who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We'll stop our reading there. The Crucifixion and the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. As you leave John chapter 16 and 17 and come to to John chapter 18, it's like leaving a lighted room and going into outer darkness. The warmth and the loveliness of Christ being in prayer to his heavenly Father for those that, that had followed him, for their protection, for their preservation for their oneness, for, for their love. All of these things now are in chapter 17. And when you come to John 18, he leaves that room and he goes to a garden where he knows that he will be betrayed. Christ faces the closing hours of his earthly life. He knows that just ahead of him will lie suffering and anguish and agony on the cross, unknown to any man up to this point, but known by Christ himself. Christ predicted exactly what would happen. Take your Bible again and and look, if you will, at the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Let's just work our way through several of the Gospels to show you how none of this would take Christ by surprise. Early in his ministry, John chapter 10, verse 17, here's what he would say to those that would be around him. Therefore doth my Father love me. Because, here's the reason why. Because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He predicted what would happen. He would lay it down. In other words, he was in control. He said, I would lay it down so that I can take it again. No one, it would be impossible for anyone to take the life of Christ unless he allowed it. So he said, I have power to lay it down. It was a power move that allowed him to lay his life down. And he said, and I will have power to take it again. John chapter 12, verse 23. Christ not only predicted what would happen... But he taught concerning his death. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, now we have our picture of glorification, don't we? And we believe that the best way for God to be glorified is for some spectacular presentation so that that lights would flash and and horns would sound. and, And here's what he has in mind. He has in mind that the Father would be glorified by the obedience of him. And so he says, the hour come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat, fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He taught concerning his own death. He said, I know that there's going to come a time that I'm going to lay my life down. But he said, I'm going to do it with power because I'm going to pick it up again. I have power to lay down. I have power to pick it up. There's not another person that has ever lived that can boast he has the power to lay down his life so that he may pick it up again. Next, he says, I'm going to teach concerning my death. He said, if you have a grain of wheat and all you do is preserve it, he says, you've got nothing but one grain. You could lose it. You could eat it. But he said the best thing to do with one grain, he said, is to put it into the ground. And if it dies in the ground, it will come forth, it will bring much fruit. He was teaching concerning his own death. Look a few verses later in verse 32. And he said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This, he said, signify by what death he should die. You see, I believe that as we come to, to what the world would say is the darkest chapter for Christianity, we as Christians see it as the brightest light, don't we? I marvel at how much in control Christ would be in what the world would call this darkest hour. I believe that one of the reasons why some people don't come to Christ is because they're afraid of the crucifixion. They're afraid to face death if Christ faced death. They're afraid that that because Christ died, he he died in vain. As you travel in Israel, you won't find a single Jew that will say there is no man named Jesus. The controversy is not about a man named Jesus or about a man named Jesus that died. That's historical fact. The controversy is this. Did he have the power to lay down his life and did he have the power to take his life again? And to raise up. And the Bible says that Jesus taught concerning his future death and concerning the fact that he would die so that he would take his life again. He said he would be crucified. Turn, if you will, now to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew's Gospel chapter 16, and we just want to to eavesdrop on the Savior as he talked with his disciples. Matthew 16, he has just asked them the question, well, who do men say that I am? And there was a variety of answers. Some said, well, maybe you're John the Baptist. And others said, well, maybe Elijah. And some said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, all right, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, thou art the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he goes on to, to tell them in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. And Peter says, wait, that, that's, that's not going to happen to you. He said, I've, I've already said that you're the Messiah. He said, that can't happen to you. But Jesus said, no. He said, from this time forward, he says, it's important for you to know that here's the agenda. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked and and stopped, and I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come alive again. Look, if you will, at Matthew chapter 17, one chapter later, verse 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. One chapter later, he says, all right, you, you need to know, here's the plan. Don't, don't take another step until you recognize, here's the plan. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside along the way and said unto them, Behold... We go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Was Christ sure of the plan? Isn't that marvelous to know? That when you see what the world calls is the darkest hour for Christianity, we find out this, that Christ was not the victim. He was the victor. He was not the one that was being taken captive. Instead, he was the great one to pursue our salvation. It was him in control. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 2. And again, it makes it very clear. He says in verse 2, you know that after two days is the feast of Passover and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. It wasn't an accident. It went by plan. Look, if you will, at Acts chapter 2. And and by the way, we could look at literally dozens of scriptures this morning that would show the same, the same outline, the same contrast that while the people sought him harm, Christ knew that this was the only way for redemption to take place. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him, that's Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. There's part one. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There's part two. Part one is this, that by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, God knew what man would do to Christ. So, it's this way. The plan was God's and the guilt was ours. Never once would a single man, never once would, would, would a Roman soldier, never once would a... Would a high priest take one step beyond what God would allow him to take? That's how in control the death of Christ was. It was no accident. Every detail, the most minute detail of the scripture would be fulfilled as he took every step along the way. He did it because the plan was God. The guilt was ours. We, by our wicked hands and by our sins, crucified him. But God, in his infinite plan of mercy and grace and salvation, allowed Christ to. To go to the cross on our behalf. John had a purpose as he wrote the Gospel of John. Each of the four Gospels are, are different. They, they shed a different light. The contrast of the Gospels is, is an interesting study. Matthew, in his Gospel, presents him as a king. Mark, in his Gospel, presents him as a servant. Luke, in his Gospel, presents him as the son of man. But John, time and time again, he presents him as the Messiah. The Christ God. And yet, isn't it amazing that that it's in John's Gospel, the one that would present him as the Messiah, and the one that would present him as fully God, that we would see this great description of the crucifixion of Christ. John's purpose then is to present Christ as God even in human flesh. The gospel. That God allows to show Christ most fully God is also careful to prove that he is man as well. John's Gospel, chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here is the Gospel of John, the one that will show that he is the Messiah, the one that will show that, that he is God. And yet that Gospel will not neglect the fact that he will go to the cross. He will die because the plan was God's, even though the crime, the sin, was ours. The crucifixion is probably the most debased situation that a person could ever find themselves in. There is no other death that compares to its brutality. There's no other death that that compares to the disfigurement. There's no other death that's known to man that compares in any way to the suffering that would go on. And so John will take this debased situation of crucifixion and he will show that even in this terrible event, all this will be done to bring glory to God and to prove that Christ was the Messiah. Now, I don't mind telling you, that's not the way we would prove it, is it? I think we would, we would try to minimize this. But Christ will show that he is preeminent in his death, I think, in three ways beginning in John 18. First of all, we will see that that he is preeminent by his control. Only one so preeminent could be in such control at the moment of his death. Two, his love. Only one who is sovereign, only one who is supreme, only one who is preeminent would be able to love the way he loved even at the moment of his death. When a person comes to, to, to the moment of death, they normally think of nothing but themselves and nothing but their own comfort, but not Christ. Listen, he was so in control. He had so much love. It proved that he was, he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And next, in his death, we're going to find that he showed his preeminence by his great obedience, his control, his love, his obedience. You know what they say to me? They say this, that he was not the victim. My dear friend, he was the victor. And he went to the cross. He, he went through this great ordeal that he might win men and women the souls of of boys and girls, that they might be eternally saved. That's why he did it. And so the Gospel of John, the account that we've read, beginning in chapter 18, I believe is written so that we might see in a fresh way the beauty of our salvation. Christ's control. He shows his control, I think, first of all, by his courage. He moves directly to the cross. He knows every event that's going to take place. He knows every minute of that evening exactly what, what will progress. And with all of that, with a cruel death before him, and mind you this, it wasn't just the idea that he would be taken and he would be nailed to a cross. It wasn't just the idea that, that his brow would be, would be planted with a crown of thorns. It wasn't just the idea that his back would be ripped with a whip. But I want you to realize that he knew that the cruel death meant going to a death and burying the entire sins for the entire world. There would never be a sinner that would ever live whose sins would not be on Christ that night. Christ had never committed a sin. There was never a single immoral thought that ever passed through his mind. His hands never did one deed that was not perfect in the sight of God. In his heart, there was never a desire that was not pure and completely in keeping with all that God had ever written. Before the night was done, the sin of every single person that had ever lived would be heaped upon him. That's the agony that, that he that he saw as he, as he looked at the cross. I want you to know that every sin that was committed by Adam and Eve... Every sin that was committed by every antediluvian in the days of Noah, the Bible says that their imagination was evil continually. Every sin that was committed by every Roman soldier, by every Jewish person who ever rejected Christ, by every single person that has ever committed any crime, whether past or future, they would all be on him that night. And my dear friend, you know what the Bible says? It says this. When he had spoken these words, he went with his disciples over the brook Kidron to the place of the garden. He knew that was the next step in God's plan. That's marvelous, isn't it? He leaves an upper room. He leaves a place of, of security with his disciples, with his followers, and he would go now to the garden. He often went to Bethany. And as you go to Bethany, from, from the upper room, you would pass right through what we call today the Mount of Olives or the Garden of Gethsemane. Really, the, the Garden of Gethsemane is, is an interesting name. The Mount of Olives, I think, gives away the fact that on this mountainside, especially on the, on the western slope of that mountainside, they had olive trees. If you go to Israel today, you'll find that there's still an olive garden there. As a matter of fact, there are trees, and and we know that the age of some of these trees are somewhere in the neighborhood of 27 and 28 hundred years. my dear friend, those are the same olive trees that are right in front of the east gate, and, and I believe right in the place where Jesus loved to pray. And I honestly think that we still have a living witness to the events that took place in John 18 and those trees.
0: We've been listening to Dr. Rob Linstead share a portion of his teaching on the power of the resurrection. Back in 2000, when this series first aired, it spanned five programs. The complete series, all five programs, are now available on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Also available today is Rob Linstead's book, The Power of the Cross. Both the book and complete five-message audio series on CD are available to order today. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can always visit our website and order there. Visit swrc.com. Back in 1999, Jerry Tyson delivered a Bible in the News report asking what happened to our culture. The details he shares are unfortunately even more relevant today. Let's listen to where we were in 1999 and how much farther the culture has fallen since then. Here's Jerry Tyson. From Oklahoma
1: City, our Bible in the News report today is brought to you by Jerry Tyson.
2: The news of recent months has been full of stories of murder, torture, and incredible inhumanity toward others as to be almost unbelievable. The Philadelphia Inquirer, September 9, 1999, carried two stories side by side on the same page of parental cruelty to children. While these kinds of stories are no longer unusual, they are worthy of mention, the first story concerned the death of an 18-month-old in Arkansas. His parents, an unmarried Tennessee couple, left the toddler, quote, to die in the wilderness and are also suspected of tossing his two-and-a-half-year-old brother to his death in a lake, unquote. The pair could face execution in the cruel death of the younger child. The second story is of a six-year-old girl in Norco, California, who is believed to have spent almost all of her life, five years, chained to a bed in a filthy room filled with human waste. When she was found, she was in the fetal position unable to speak except by grunts and moans, and dressed only in a diaper. Further details of both of these stories will only cause people with any sensibilities to become ill. Stories of similar nature have become so common as to not raise much attention anymore. They all point to something having happened to our culture. We've swallowed a lie. We've been programmed to believe that our actions have no consequences. It's taught in our schools, in our pop culture, movies, music, literature, television and almost every place else, including many churches that have turned away from the authority of God. At some point, it begins to pile up to incredible proportions, and then suddenly our culture screams out, Why? Isn't it strange that as a nation we have rebelled at all restrictions placed on us by religion? But there is still something inside us that screams out that some things are wrong, while other things are right. Our sensibilities are challenged by man's inhumanity to man. Why should we expect anything better? We've told God we don't want or need him. We'd rather do it ourselves. We've followed the course of which Paul warned the Romans, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant-breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Romans 1, 29-32. When fear of God's judgment no longer permeates the thinking of contemporary society, the future for the people that rejects him is not bright. He places the death sentence upon any and all that have pleasure in wickedness. Individually, that sentence is eternal separation from God in hell forever. For a nation that forgets God, that will be the ultimate destruction. I want to encourage all of our
0: new listeners to request your free New Listener Pack. The New Listener Pack includes the latest issue of our Prophetic Observer Newsletter and a free gift. Request your free New Listener Pack when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. The Power of the Resurrection radio messages by Rob Linstead are available on CD. Also available is Rob Linstead's book, The Power of the Cross. Both the book and complete five-message audio series on CD are available today. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, we'll be listening to different folks' reflections on Southwest Radio Ministries, and they'll be sharing what SWRC and Watchmen on the Wall has meant to them. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for over 90 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit SWRC.com.